Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jade. Welcome to Marginalia Pod. Where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Darug people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Finua of Tifanganui Atara, where I'm recording today. And it is Waitangi Day today, so it feels extra special. Oh, what's Waitangi? Is it Waitangi Day? Waitangi, yeah. It um, commemorates the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, which is the treaty that was signed by the, you know, um, Māori iwi across the country with the crown, basically, like acknowledging that, hey, you can uh, lease our land under these conditions. And then the crown went, oh, cool, thanks, and took all the land as per usual. We're a bit off track here, but um, have you listened to (laughs) Stuff the British Stole by Mark Fennell? No, but that sounds amazing. I'm going to write that down. But there is an entire episode on um, the shrunken heads, which is a mm. whole thing I didn't even know about. And Yeah, so, not good. <laughs> yeah, no. So very fascinating history. And um, I'll, have, I'll put a link in the show notes if we ever get around to that. But um, yeah, so good and so much, like so much to think about. So this week... We are reading chapters five and six through the theme of impossibility. Yes. I would like to hear a story about impossibility. Jen, would you tell me a story about impossibility? Yeah, so I actually really struggled. Like, I was kind of tossing up between two stories about impossibility, and I didn't know which one to tell. Because I was thinking about impossibility as something which, like, shouldn't occur, that occurs. And you're like, well, how is this possible? But then also thinking of it yeah. as something that is difficult to deal with or something that is kind of, like, you know, hard to, to process. Yeah. I had an example for each one, and I was, like, trying to decide which one to tell. So I think I'll tell... Well, I think I'll tell the one that's about things that are hard to process. Okay. So in 2019... We had a terrorist attack here in New Zealand, which we yeah. all refer to as the March 15 attack. Um, and it was something that I was really closely working on in my job at the time. I was very much involved in it kind of like on a blow by blow basis as it was unfo- unfolding. And it was a really intense day, the March 15th itself, but also the days following it were really intense. Like there was a lot to deal with and there was a lot of things to organize and a lot of uncertainty and just a lot of things a lot of moving parts and I I really struggled not just to kind of process what had happened on the day which was this just like horrific thing but also just like I couldn't afford to stop like I had to keep going in order to do my job so I could never really slow down and then I had to on that Monday so March 15th was the Friday so on the 16th, 18th, I had to fly to Perth because my dad was really ill at the time. He'd just gotten mm. out of hospital. Oh, I didn't realize it was at the same time. Yeah, he was really unwell. So I had booked this flight home for a week, obviously not realizing that this terrorist attack was going to happen that was going to like really impact my job. And so it was this real thing about do I still go? Do I stay and like deal with this? And I'm like, no, I have to go. You know, my dad's unwell. And I got on the plane and like on the plane was just the moment where I really allowed myself to stop. And I just remember getting on the plane and just like crying, like from Mm -hmm. here, from Wellington all the way to Melbourne. And then when I got off the plane in Melbourne, I just was so struck by the fact that I was walking through Melbourne airport and everyone was just living their lives. You know, I was seeing people laughing and having like lols and I had my phone up and I was just like watching the press conference because the prime minister was doing these daily press conferences and I was watching the live press conference. And people were just living their lives. Like, it was weird coming from New Zealand where it was kind of like this all-encompassing thing that had affected everyone so 
intensely yeah. to being in Australia where people are like, la, 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 carrying on. And I just remember being so overwhelmed by the fact that people were just living their lives and they were untouched by this momentous thing that has just completely changed my life. Like there is a very firm line in the sand of who I was before March 15th and who I was after March 15th. And when yeah. you see people just untouched by that, I just, just like, it made me think like, is this what it feels like? You know when something tragic happens and you like you get all those thoughts and prayers things and then people move on with their lives. But for the people who are affected by it, they don't just get to move on with their lives. Like, you know, this is something that is just indelible in their psyche. Yeah. And I just, yeah, to me it was just so impossible that people could just live their lives and not be affected. I just couldn't comprehend it. And I really, yeah, that just felt like a big impossibility to me. Yeah, that's exactly what impossibility is, right? Like it's not something that can be reconciled it's not something that you can accept or bear or tolerate I mean it's not just things that shouldn't or don't exist it's also Mm. like what's just too much to be yeah I kind of just wanted to like run through the airport being like do you understand what has happened do you understand what terrible thing has occurred and how many lives have been ripped apart by this horrible horrible thing you can't just be sitting at McDonald's having a laugh like I want you to feel the turmoil that I'm in People not allowing themselves to feel the whole horror of a situation is both a protective measure and also sometimes just, like, callousness of privilege. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, a real privilege to be able to not care about these things, right? Like, Mm. or even, like, you can care, but only for an hour. Being like, oh, isn't that horrible? And then maybe you donate some money and then you move on with your life. But, and I just remember feeling so overwhelmed because... I didn't feel like I was, I wasn't personally affected. Like, you know, I wasn't a victim. It wasn't my family members who had been murdered. You know, it wasn't my community that had been targeted. So I didn't feel like I had any claim to this complete horror that I was feeling. But because I was working so closely on it, I just couldn't, couldn't. Yeah, yeah. It was just there was intense. no distance for you. You were in it yeah. whether you had the ties to the community beforehand or not. Hmm. So that was my little impossibility story. The other one was a bit more like fun, but I thought that one was <laughs> kind of felt like it fit the chapters. Well, look, if I'd had a story this week, it would have been about how I always break things in impossible ways. So <laughs> yours is much more relevant to the world we actually live in. <laughs> um, did you have a moment of wonder this week? Um, I did. Um, so a friend of mine has been going through a really rough time and like, I won't say too much here. We've spoken about it and you know who I'm talking about, but, um, Mm -hmm. they're a very private person and like for all of our friendship, which has gone for more than a decade, like I've always felt like we, I really want to be close to this person and I get the feeling they want that too, but we're just not like, it's hard for us to find the common language. Mm. Um, and they were really vulnerable with me this week. Um, And because it's so hard for them to be open, it felt like a gift, even though they were going through a really difficult time. And I felt like I can't mess it up. I just have to be really still and really careful. Like, I don't want to hurt them by saying the wrong thing. But I think I did okay. And I just, it was a gift because it was, being vulnerable sucks, man. It is the Mm. hardest thing. It's the worst. But um, I think I did okay. And I think they're going to be okay, but it's just a really rough time for them right now. And I feel really bad about it because there's nothing I can actually do. But I took my advice from last week and I said, how can I help? Yeah, and your presence is already helping. Being there for someone when they're vulnerable is really important. So I think you did great. Thanks. I'm (laughs) trying. How about you? Any wondrous moments? Yeah, so mine's a bit silly. Um, Silly is good. We've gone so deep today. (laughs) 
let's lighten it up, Bay. Okay, well, I'll talk about plants because I have been growing these little seedlings. So um, a supermarket chain here gives away these seedling kits every now and then. And like they did this in the spring, so in September, and I collected a bunch and like all of my friends who get them from the supermarket who don't want them have given them to me. So I have like so many seedlings and I kind of grow them in batches and um, I've got a couple on the go. So I've got couple of cherry tomato plants that are nice and big now and I've got Mm. lots of herbs I realized that I've got six cherry tomato plants and that felt like a lot of work because you know I'm gonna have to plant them into bigger pots and get like you know supports for them and I'm like I can't have six massive pots in my house so I ended up selling four of them and I've only got two left so I'm hoping they're gonna be good good to me these two but I also had like chives and I had this moment where I got to harvest my chives and I chopped them up and I put them in some sour cream and I had them with some chips and I'm like, I am a farmer. And I'm like, isn't this cool (laughs) that I can do this? Like I've got some radishes growing. I've got some red onions and I'm just like, carrots like I've never been like I've always thought of myself as not a gardener but I'm like I've realized you just leave them alone and they tend to do okay so yeah that's it isn't it that's really I think that's quite like it just made me feel quite wondrous and magical that I have this like I grew this I grew this myself from nothing and now I'm proud of you thank you (laughs) it is exciting when you can eat we've got several tomato plants that are like volunteers in the garden Mm. and so I'm always like oh no I have to deal with the weed thicket again because this is like area of our garden but then it was full of tomato plants so I was like oh darn I guess I have to leave it there are are baby (laughs) tomatoes on here that are growing and they're like a super prolific cherry tomato and they're really yummy so yum see that's why I've got cherry tomato plants I love them so much they're adorable as well who doesn't love tiny things I know and my lemon trees just put out two lemons and apparently there's a lemon shortage in New Zealand and I'm like not in my house I got two (laughs) a lemon shortage that should not be allowed lemons are life anyway so yeah I'm glad you're growing green things and eating them that is amazing thanks um I made the mistake of growing like because because they come in these kits and I just grow them I just like the act of like watching the seedlings sprout and I just <laughs> love the whole thing and then I realized oh I don't want this so I had like three bok choys and I'm like I don't want this what do I do with yeah. it <laughs> but um I've joined my local community garden so when I grow the seedlings now I'll go plant them in the garden and other people can benefit from them from them that's so I, amazing I get the joy of watching them grow and then <laughs> I'm really sad that our islands are so draconian about sending you seeds because now I want to send you so many amazing plants to grow no I know no that would they would be destroyed we'll both end up in jail (laughs) straight to jail do not send seeds or plant materials to (laughs) Australia or New Zealand kids just don't do it they will be destroyed (laughs) yeah the the letter will be sent on to whoever you were sending it to saying this was opened by quarantine and its contents were destroyed because it violated all of these codes it's very terrifying don't even think about it all right. Um, I'll read some chapter summaries if you would like. Oh, fabulous. Thank you. All right. So chapter five, Richard explores the floating market and interrupts Dor's audition for a bodyguard. The legendary fighter hunter beats Varney to get the job. Krupp and Vandemar are not happy with Varney's failure. Richard is abandoned and suicidal, but Dor's conscience saves him. Uh, Islington makes his entrance. Chapter 6. Richard struggles with the concept of angels. The Marquis deals in more favors. Richard discovers terrifying things live in the gaps of Underground Station. The party wait for the train containing the Earl's Court. Back at their decrepit headquarters, Mr. Croup is having a tantrum. He disagrees with their employer's approach. Mr. Vandemar is unfazed. Yes. 
So this was kind of a cool slash not cool chapter for me. Yeah, it was an interesting one, hey? Like, one chapter was significantly longer than the other. Yeah. But yeah, not a lot of compassion in this section, I found. And like, I think the bits where I found it, I was kind of like reaching to make sure that it worked. Yeah. Like, I really struggled to find compassion, a lot of kind of cruelty and callousness. Yeah, it felt very much like, and I mean, even Richard says it, he feels like a child tagging along behind older kids who don't care mm. or want him. So there's this sort of like layer of childishness or like, oh, if you don't know, you can't be here. I mean, mm. it's like bullying almost the way that you're like sort of excluded from this environment or something. And they yeah. keep calling him the upworlder, but he's not anymore, is he? Like, so. Yeah, because they say quite clearly, you don't exist up there, but then they refer him as the upwarder and there's also that bit um towards the end of the section where the marquis says you know there really is nothing quite like total ignorance is there and he's like all smug about like richard not understanding but he's not helping richard understand either mm, he's just yeah. like completely dismissive and just like making fun of him and being a total jerk and then being like oh, well you don't know anything you can't yeah. do that <laughs> don't magic explain to me yeah yeah, he he really enjoys having the upper hand, the Marquis does, and that's not a good look for him. Mm. Um, I think that the Hunter was, like, the most straightforwardly compassionate character. Mm. Because she saved his life a few times, and she, like, gives him all of these really useful tips, like, mind the gap, and, you know, that thing doesn't have a name, but stay back here against the wall. Um, and oh, there's another thing, like... If you want to get on the trains, you have to show them who's boss. Whatever that means, it's still a useful tip. He'll figure it out. Yeah. And um, pray you never meet the shepherds in Shepherd's Bush, which cracked me up because, like, that doesn't seem like, what kind of shepherds are these? (laughs) Angry ones. Um, Mm. Yeah, and I mean, she takes them to the market as well. She doesn't really have to do that. Uh, and then she has that, like, you know, oh, you're here in one piece and I reckon you'll be okay. So, you know, fare you well. And she's on her way and... So, yeah, I thought she was straight compassionate as well. And when she says to Dor, you know, I saved his life three times already. I'm like, did you? Where? She's like, where was all yeah. this life saving? So I think at the beginning, uh, the beginning before they get on the bridge in the last chapter, she did, right? Because she sort of intervenes. With Sivani, yeah. Yeah, because he's just in a bad mood. Um, and, and then, on then the I think on the bridge, yeah. But I don't know where the third one would be. I did think it was interesting when, you know, there's a moment of compassion from Richard when he has to know, I guess, if um, anesthesia is dead. You know, he has to ask, even though he hates himself for having to ask. And Hunter's like, yes, she's dead or as good as. Mm. And to me, I just wrote in the margins, like, that's not the same thing. As good as dead is not the same as dead. Like, I think those are two quite different things. Yeah. As per last book, we talked about this with with Gabe versus Tommy Falk, mm. yeah. Mm. Dead is dead and not dead and in a lot of pain and tormented is another. Yeah, she's just perpetually now trapped in a nightmare. Like, that's not okay. <laughs> oh, gosh, I did think that and I was very worried. I have a lot of feelings about anesthesia. She should have had a better life. Agreed. And just speaking of nightmares, there's a lot of nightmare imagery in this. There's, like, it comes up a lot. So there's a st- the seller at the market who trades in nightmares. Yeah. Nightmares on the bridge. The thing that lives between the gaps is kind of described as a nightmare. You know, all these things. So it's quite a common thread. Yeah, it's what it, it does feel like that. Like, it's surreal and impossible and not, like, it's not something that should or could happen. Although I had to ask yeah. myself, you know, what kind of world is London below that someone wants to buy a nightmare? Like, what is the need for this? that there's a stall for it. What are these people doing? It reminded me of the big friendly giant and they made that one horrible nightmare for the queen. Mm. Didn't see that in the crown. 
Hmm. <laughs> um, I also thought it was there was something in the impossibility of when the familiar becomes unfamiliar. So, you know, Richard talks about having been dragged with Jessica to go to Harrods all the time and now suddenly he's in yeah. a space that he's so intimately familiar with, but it's a completely different world. Yeah, and it seems like they exist in that world, but they don't actually interact with it in any way that's meaningful or long-lasting. Mm. So it's very, it's like a superimposition rather than a full immersion. Yeah. Because they talk about when he's watching them leave, they pack everything up onto their backs. Like the stalls come with them and the stalls leave with them. And it's like no one has been there. Yeah, and there's not a trace of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, they're all there very temporarily. And he also makes the observation, you know, why is no one looting? And it makes me think maybe they can't. Like, maybe, you know, there's just like a veil between the two worlds. So, like, their presence doesn't impact on Harrods, but they can also not make mm. an Like, they can't take things either, you know? You can't... Or maybe it's because they don't want the things that are in there. Well, that probably too. Because, look, I mean, the lady was so excited to get a ballpoint pen and a matchbook that she gave him, like... I don't know, well, whatever the equivalent of, like, a Greg sandwich is. This is what really annoyed me, because Richard has no idea of the value of the things that he's bartering. And the it watch. May- yeah, he throws the watch away. The what watch. Are you doing? I wrote that down. I was so mad. I was like, you fool. But you then, like? Yeah, he also offers this woman, like, a ballpoint pen and a matchbook for, like, a, a soup. And she's like, oh, no. And she gives him some biscuits. Like, no, she's probably robbed you blind. Like, you probably could have gotten so much. Like, And then you have to give your handkerchief mm-hmm. away to get some What? I just think he's made some poor decisions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The watch thing really killed me because I was like, it was a real sign to me that he was beginning to accept the impossibility of the world that he was in without understanding all. It's like he knew half of the language but couldn't speak it. He could understand it, but he couldn't speak it. Because mm. he says, you know, time in London below had only a passing acquaintance with the kind of time he was used to. So in his mind, he was like, well, I don't need a watch. Even if it was bro- not, wasn't broken, he's kind of like, time moves differently. The watch is meaningless. I'm going to throw it away. Everything about the floating markets is impossible. Like oh, everything. The yeah. amount of people there, the way you get there, the things that are for sale. And there's one thing particularly I want to go on a little tangent about at the end. The dreams, the nightmares, the sadistic Victorian dentistry. Holy moly. Yeah, I totally agree. Like it is completely impossible what they're selling and just the way they're behaving. And But I found it was interesting that Old Bailey, like this is obviously a thing that's been going on for, you know, millennia maybe for all we know. Because Old Bailey's like, I told them we had to diversify. He's like, we need to branch out our offering to the people. <laughs> I thought that was quite funny. It's like Gallivant. That's what it reminded mm. me of. Like those little anachronisms. Um, I thought it was also like interesting that Richard was like, oh, he reminds me of someone I saw once because of all his little signs. And I was like, ooh, was it him? Did you see him? Yeah, like the person you met like two days ago, maybe. Oh my maybe? gosh, yeah. <laughs> that felt like, yeah, that one kind of took me out of the story a bit. I did see some compassion with Dor, but it to me it seemed like a real mark of her youth that mm. she kept fighting against the urge to be compassionate. Like she, she was furious at Richard, which fair enough, but like also and having left him in London above, knowing that his life would be forever altered. Like she said, I'm sorry, but then she left him. What did she think was going to happen? Would she have ever spared a thought for him if he hadn't turned up? Yeah, I guess unless she thought that maybe, you know, there was a chance that it wouldn't happen and she was just really hoping that by not acknowledging the fact that, you know, that his life will be ruined, she was like, well, he's lived happily ever after, you know, plausible deniability. She could be like, well, he's fine. It wasn't her problem until it was, again, her problem. Until he was in front of her. And yet she, there's an impossibility in that as well because she can't, she can't believe that he's there. She can't believe that he's made his way there and that he's turned up and yeah. And, you know, she finds 
fights against her compassion, you're right, because she's like, even though I don't think she's cruel, she's kind of trying to be, I need to protect myself, so I'm going to leave Richard because he's only going to hold me back. But then she can't quite yeah. fight against her conscience. She's like... Whereas the Marquis is mm. just enjoying being a jerk. Yeah. There's something about how Richard can accept all of these other things. Like, he can accept that there's a monster in the gap that bleaches the color from his jeans and leaves welts on his skin. He can accept that nightmares were being sold. He can accept that he got a perfectly decent meal for a matchbook and a ballpoint pen and was able to get information for the cost of a handkerchief. Like, all of this is not impossible for him. But the fact that the idea of an angel, an actual angel, is when he's seen magic and he understands it now as a thing, that feels to me like a, an important story thing, but I don't know why. Like, like he's like, oh no, that angels aren't real. Yeah, and I was thinking about that as well because he kind of accepts everything that happens to him in his journey to find Dor, because there's a part of him that goes, if I can just find Dor, she will make this right. Like she will look after me and then yeah. this will no longer be my problem. I will have a place where I belong, right? Because currently he's just floating along. So I wonder if he can accept everything that's happening to him on this journey because it's like, everything will be fixed once I get to Dor. And then when he gets yeah. there, he is not fixed. Everything is not fine. And then he gets told about right. an angel and he's like, no. There's a great line on page 131 where he's like, there was a hysteria in there certainly, but there was also the exhaustion of someone who had managed somehow to believe several impossible things in the last 24 hours without ever, ever getting proper breakfast. And that's just like... <laughs> Which is a callback to Alice in Wonderland, isn't it? Yeah. And I just think, you know, that's just him being like, nah, I've reached my limit. I thought everything was going to be fine once I got to door and I've got here and everything is not fine. And now what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the quest was always get his life back, right? He was only mm. going in this underworld so that he could actually achieve a, an end, which was to, you know, like become a London above mm -hmm. upworlder again, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that, like, once the quest is done, I think the, the real despair sets in for him. And yeah. There's compassion there as well, because when Dor goes back to get him, she says, you know, I'll try to get your, your life back. And he's, he even says, you know, it's probably an impossibility, but she offers it to him. She, she promises yeah. to try. And that gives him something to cling to. There's a few little markers of Richard's compassion that have turned up. I think the ability to see that he describes a beautiful homeless child that he was that he saw in Covent Garden and you know we talk about how he was interacting with the woman who he gave his umbrella to in the, the prologue and he sees Dor even though Jessica steps right over her like the fact that he sees them makes me think he's like predisposed mm. yeah I feel like Dor kind of talks about that a little bit when she's having her inner battle right she's like she didn't know if she was just she opened a door to Richard because she was hoping for someone who can help her and that's why he could see her or maybe he could just see the dispossessed. Yeah, on page 129, the action of helping her had tumbled him from his world into hers. Mm. And she wonders if it was that or if there was something else. Mm. And I mean, maybe it's like the confluence of everything. Richard being able to see people in need, Richard feeling kind and compassionate, just in general, Richard being willing to disrupt a very important thing in his life in order to help someone in need, like that feels very much like what mm. would be required of him. And that in itself is almost an impossibility. Like someone who would be that selfless in that moment and look after mm. someone, you know, that's... Mm. Yeah, and I mean, the whole time he was kind of like, well, it has to be done, but like there are going to be consequences and I'll deal with them. Like I'll ring Jessica and I'll make it work and like it'll be fine like he's he's itchy to get rid of door in the beginning but he's not 
unkind about it. He helps her on these impossible quests and then now he's on an impossible quest of his own to find her to see if he can get his life back because he assumes it will eventually come good. I think he's just operating on this like optimism <laughs> maybe. Yeah except for that moment of despair we have when he's just sitting in the dark and he's like well I won't even fight if someone tries to come and get me I'm done. Fair enough right like if you if you are really left alone with no options yeah. And your entire existence has been erased. I can see how he got there. I think it would take me a lot more, but I, I can see how he got there. It's just, yeah, complete despair. Yeah, poor Richard. Did it strike you that the hunter wasn't keeping track of his, like, of helping Richard as favors, like the way the Marquis would? Yeah, the Marquis, like, obsession with favors is something, right? Because even when he's trying to get the, um, the map, he's like purposely selling something bigger like more worthwhile so that he can get a favor in return so favors must be the ultimate currency because i guess he just calls in favors that are way bigger than what people <laughs> should be giving him yeah. and hunter is just like well this is just the thing that i do maybe because she's so self-assured and so confident in her own power she's almost untouchable that she doesn't feel the need to do that yeah well and she's been she's been gone for quite a while right so like yeah. wherever she was she was fine and even her appearance is an impossibility in itself. Like, everyone's like, wait, you're THE hunter? Like, yeah. I kind of like that she turned up and she was a she. Yeah. And she was just so good. Amazing. The one thing I really loved was Richard being so entranced by her violence. It's like when you watch a really good fighting scene and you're like, oh, man. Yeah. Like, every time I watch Mad Max Fury Road, I feel that way about <laughs> that movie. Like, every bit of that, because it's, like, it's a chase movie, right? Mm-hmm over three days and it is so good it is so good because they spent so much time storyboarding and choreographing it it's incredible and so i feel the same way about that movie that richard does watching the hunter fight because she's just so good she makes violence make sense to him in a way that never did before yeah and he's like you know this he says on page 122 it seemed utterly right in this unreal mirror of the london that he had known that she should be there and that she should be fighting so dangerously and so well He's like, yeah. yep, this fits, this is right. And that's probably the yeah. first thing that to him has felt right in quite some time, I think. Which I love, because of course this beautiful and amazingly dangerous woman has come in and upended his world, yeah. With a smile that could stop a revolution. Yeah, do you, do you feel like she's like wars, war from Good Omens' twin sister, maybe? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The smile that starts wars, yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting that she seemed to fight purely physically, you know, all the other bodyguards that we'd seen in the auditioning side all were using magic in some form and this impossible yeah, kind of fighting. Neck. Yeah, where they were just like really concentrating really hard and she's like, nah, I'm just going to get in here and beat you up. Maybe there's something to be said about how using the impossible becomes so normal that using what's possible and probable is actually the more unexpected attack. I was wondering if there wasn't something in like Richard's grip on his sanity that's starting like there's a lot of mentions in this section about you know sanity and madness like and when he walks into the mm. floating market he says it's pure madness of that there was no doubt and then later when he emerges from harrods afterwards with the the group and he says you know it all seems so normal so quiet so sane and i wonder if that's not also something that tips him into despair a little bit you know when they abandon him he's sort of like losing his grip on He's not only lost his life, but he feels like he's losing his mind, too. Yeah, I yeah, definitely. Well, and he's just seen a whole bunch of stuff which should not be real. 
He's seen a lot of the impossible. And even, like, making himself accept it. He's just gone through this huge emotional change. The only thing I could think of was in the process of, like, I mean, this is a classic story of, like, here's your everyman thrown into a new environment. Like, yeah. I mean, this is basically a travel novel. Hmm. Yeah. So I kept thinking, like, every time Richard compares and contrasts something from London Below and London Above. Well, that's exactly what I did when I first came to Australia, right? I would say, oh, this is however many dollars in Australian money. So it must be this many dollars in the US. And it was like, it took me probably about six months to just sort of not think that way anymore because I still had to put everything into my own frame of reference and then I could move forward. I kept seeing that with Richard where he was like, oh, so in London Above, we wouldn't do this or this would be considered this or like, but he's also figuring out how to do things in London Below. Yeah. As it's happening. Like he's embracing the impossibility of the nature of London Below without I think without intent to stay, but he's still trying to understand it because he wants to be able to do well there. Yeah, there is something of the immigrant experience in that, I think, just the way that he's moving through the world and he's trying to, like, adapt to the customs and he's trying to find how he fits in and learn the rules and do all these things, which I think, yeah, when you move to a new country, you do you do make those shifts. Yeah. And in a way that you might not do if you were just traveling for a short period of time, right? I feel like he, while he wants his old life back, there's a part of him that accepts that he might never get it back and he best learn how to work like how to make this work yeah he's also pretty good even though he chides himself for not he's also pretty good at being in the moment right Mm. like he's not sitting there the whole time going obsess 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 he's going okay well i need to get food there's food here i'll i'll see if like oh she doesn't talk okay we'll figure it out and then like figured out that she would trade and figured out what he had was worthwhile to her like He's able to muddle through because he is focused on each little individual task at a time. And maybe that's because his bigger goal does seem achievable, but yeah. Mm, no, that's, that's a good point. I thought it was interesting also how he, he stops trying to impress people. And he, he's, you know, there's a line on page 136 where he said, Richard found that he cared less and less what these people thought of him. And it's like he stops trying to impress them so much. He doesn't really care if he looks like an idiot. He's just trying to, to function, right? Yeah. And I made the note that, you know, that is the way to greatness. Like, not caring what people think about you is how you're going to prosper. Yeah, it's, um, there's definitely this idea of, like, the society of London Below is somehow, I think it's somehow stricter in a lot of ways Mm. than London Above. Like, maybe just because it's the way he was. And he talks about that when he talks about his life, you know, like, um, where is it? Uh, Page 130. His life so far had magnificently failed to prepare him for a life as an unperson on the roofs and in the sewers of London for a life in the cold and the wet and the dark. Mm. Like he, he just doesn't inhabit that world, but here he is in that world. And he's starting to adjust to it by being like, all right, well, if I don't care and I just go in there, like, bold with my agenda right out there then you know he'll get what he wants and eventually just by bumping into people and asking around he finds himself in front of old bailey and he is able to get the information about where door is yeah and i thought it was interesting and like getting to that as well where he said you know he wondered how this is page 112 he wondered how normal london his london would look to an alien and that made him bold it's almost like he had Mm. to remove himself and be like okay so if i am an alien visitor then i'm just gonna do what they would do and he sort of removes himself like he almost like associates from like the risks yeah. and he's like i'm just gonna barrel on through that's um cognitive behavioral therapy 101 right? yeah like 
Take your anxiety and give it a name. And he's called it an alien. Um, I thought it was interesting that the moments where he seems to rail most against it, even though he sort of accepted that, okay, there's London Below and there's magic and all these things, the moments where he really struggles is where it kind of intersects with things that he dealt with directly. So like the shepherds of Shepherd's Bush. He's like, well, there are no shepherds of Shepherd's Bush. And, mm. you know, mind the gap. Well, you know, he's heard it so much it becomes oral wallpaper. And then like, what do you mean there's something yeah. living in the gap? You know, like these things. And they like, can angel at angel station that's ridiculous yeah it's the intersection of yeah finding out they're not called coolers they're called eskies and chili bins right like he can't reconcile those things got called out for that the other day when i called it an, an esky and people are like oh an esky what's that i'm like oh, a chili bin you know what it is you have so many australians <laughs> living in new zealand you know what it is don't give me that that always makes me so crazy in south africa it's a cooler box i'm like why have i had to learn three separate words for this very simple thing <laughs> that exists wait is there a name for it in england what are eskies, chili bins coolers cooler boxes Surely called it's just like a cooler Right. I'm sure that there's some sort of like. It's just such a simple contraption. Why do we have so many words for it? it frustrates. It's me. an insulated box for keeping food and drink cool when you are out <laughs> and about for long periods of time. You take them camping and on picnics. Let us know what it's called in your country. <laughs> yes, if you have a different name for it, I want to know. Hello at marginaliapod.com. Please tell us what your SK equivalent unit is. So frustrating. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, people only ever correct you when they know, Mm. and they're doing it to be smug. Like, you know that they're just going to have that smile on their face, like, oh, did you mean this? You're like, you know what I meant. Like, there was no communication breakdown. You just want to feel mildly superior over me. Um, Immigrant problems. (laughs) Whenever someone gives me any nonsense about having an American accent, I'm like, I could tell you how many times I have seen people write draw instead of drawer. And that's because of the Australian accent. But I'm not going to because I am not a jerk. Yeah. Anyway, rant over. Um, yeah, it's like the ultimate nightmare. My mom is like, can you say this? Can you say this? Can you say this? And I'm like, no, I'm not a parlor trick for you to like trot out <laughs> words to say in a different accent. Like, just leave me alone. I just want to know words in other languages because that's what that's like my jam. But I feel like that's somehow better because at least you're like learning something in a different language. But if you just want someone to say something in English because they have a different accent than you, then I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to this poor person? No, I unsubscribe. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, the first time I ever spoke to my husband on the phone, I just burst out laughing because his accent was so cute and so different. It is a shock. I could not contain my glee. And to see if I missed anything for compassion or impossibility. I kind of like that the Earl's Court is a train That's carriage. That's cool, hey. And this is the thing with Neil Gaiman that he does really well. is He turns normal things into interesting ideas. Mm. So Angel Islington is turned into the Angel of Islington. And the Earl's, car- or Earl's Court is actually turned into a train carriage on a line that doesn't go... That isn't on the... Yeah, it's not on the... I don't it know. It doesn't go through the Earl's Court. It's not the district line, so... Yeah, I have no idea. This is all a mystery to me. But it is, yeah, because like Richard's like, well, this this train doesn't take us to Earl's Court, and the Marquis's like, oh, really? Do tell me more, because he's a jerk. <laughs> if if the hunter were explaining it, she would have just told him, right? Mm. Like, but they all seem to take turns handling Richard, and it's none of them are perfect at it. Yeah, 
And my Richard's like thinking back, being like, oh, I'm sure that angel is named after a pub or something in Islington. Like, it wouldn't be because there's an angel. And all I could think of is like the times I've been to Angel Station, which has the most terrifying escalators in the world. Because you're so far. I don't know. I feel like it's further underground than the other stations. And that the escalators are practically vertical. And so you stand on them. If you look down, it's like a terrifying experience. I do not like it. Really? I've never been there. I'll have to find a picture. I've only been there like a couple of times to the station. And I think the last time was for a friend's engagement party. And I just remember being like, these escalators are not a good time. (laughs) I am 100% sure that there's probably like a blog out there somewhere that has all of the Neverwhere locations. Oh, yeah. 100%. Surely. Um, Speaking of the marquee, though, I'm starting to think that, you know, how Krupp and Vandermar aren't human and we know that they're not human. I'm wondering if the marquee Mm. is human. Because there's this bit on page 129 where it says, The Marquis raised an eyebrow. He was detached, removed. A creature of pure irony. I'm like, is he even a human? Because he doesn't... He takes such joy and misery. Yeah, he does. He seems to kind of feed off of it. I get the feeling that he's... in this, Like, the angel has made an appearance now. And I, I did think maybe it's something to, about, like, the angel has manifested itself like a god. Hmm. And I wondered if the Marquis was a bit the same. Because he's from something, isn't he? It's not just this book. Like, there's definitely, this character has appeared somewhere else. Hmm. I think you're on the right track that he's not human. Or maybe he's not human anymore. If time doesn't work the same way, then how old are these people? Yeah. How long does being invisible and gathering power in the society, which really only rewards that specific type of selfishness. I mean, how long do you have to steep yourself in that before you become amoral and just made of irony and smugness? And stealing candy from a literal baby. Speaking of Islington, the angel, no pronouns, genderless. It's interesting how they just have this real like cinematic entrance coming in turning on some candles leaving again very dramatic drinking some water Hmm. like even though i listened to it twice in a row yesterday that felt very far away for me that whole passage felt very far away for me Mm. i really struggled with it because i felt like oh this just doesn't feel real it felt more impossible than any of the things richard was experiencing and i'm wondering if that's because richard is our link to like normal yeah so narratively if he's not experiencing it if we're not getting it through the filter of boring normal richard mayhew like it just didn't make sense or it didn't hook me in the same way it seems sort of separate but perhaps because yeah maybe it's the concept of the angel is so separate anyway that it's not meant to feel real or part of the world like it's supposed to be an impossibility i don't know yeah but another thing that i found was kind of impossible is when croup and vandermar are like down in their hospital bunker, whatever their lair is. And, you know, Krupp is having his little breakdown about life. And the phone rings and the phone is not connected (laughs) to anything, you know? Yeah, I like that kind of magic where you have to use the telephone, but the phone isn't actually connected to anything. Yeah, but it made me wonder because, like, Krupp is kind of bad-mouthing their employer all the time and being like, you know, I don't agree and blah, blah, blah. And then the phone just rings. What if he has, like... Like, I don't know, there's part of me that's like, is his employer aware of what he's saying? Like, does his employer just know? Omniscience. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But I did, I did think that that was 100% linked. Yeah, I agreed. I was just like, oh, oh, he's going to yeah. be in the naughty corner for that. And then he gets a phone call. <laughs> and like, even though there's like, you know, his voice doesn't change as he punches the wall next to him. I'm like, oh, toxic masculinity, even in London below. Mm. Yeah, the way that they 
act is very strange because it does very much feel like they're pretending to be people. Mm. Um, but they don't ever hit the notes right. Yeah, it's just a little bit off. Yeah, men-shaped monsters. I did like that they took the lift, though, when Barney was just running down the stairs. He's like, lift? <laughs> I did wonder what that station looked like or what station it was. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you've actually, like, been to and lived in London because you were able to go to a lot of these places and, like, really experience them. And you can remember them and be like, yes, this feels right. Or I can see why this might be Mm. that way. Did it tell us what station he went to? I can't remember now. No. I kept thinking of the catacombs because there were these long spiral stairs to get down into the catacombs. Paris loves but a, that's Paris. Paris loves a spiral staircase. Any opportunity for a spiral staircase. Every hostel I lived in in France was like, no lift, only spiral staircase, and you're on the eighth floor. I'm like, great, thanks. I just can't imagine being a servant in those times. You must have had amazing calves, like the best legs. Yeah, you just have to, hey. Up and downstairs all day is a great workout. Mm, I don't like it. Fair enough. But you're, you're in a single level now, aren't you? Your last place had stairs aplenty. Yeah, but I have to climb like 80 stairs to get to my place. So it's like up a hill. Oh. But once I get up here, then it's all one level. I love stairs, but uh, yeah, that's probably too many even for me. That's why I got movers, because I'm like, I am not carrying things up these stairs. That was compassion for yourself, because yeah. it felt impossible. Here we go, bringing it back. <laughs> That's right. Um, it was just a funny juxtaposition, of course, of the wealth of Harrods against like the kind mm. of and yeah marginalized community that's taken over and are selling nightmares and, I don't know, rats on sticks or whatever. Or well, they probably don't eat rats, because they seem to be a lord <laughs> rat, but... <laughs> Oh no, you wouldn't eat rats. You, In fact, you bow and say sir to them because, <laughs> hello, ratty. <laughs> so funny, ratty. <laughs> ratty. But I also loved how he's like, oh, I threw a remote at that rat. And everyone's like, what? <laughs> how are you still alive? <laughs> it's only because Dor made him apologize that he was able to like, get to the floating market yeah and the fact that he did it with such sincerity i think even in that moment when everything was impossible he was like oh yeah of course i'll apologize to the rat i really struggle with the croup and vandemar stuff i think i'm just a bit soft now in my tender mothering age and i just want everyone to be kind and so these vampiric monster men who i don't know engage the services of bodyguards and then kill them and eat them yeah leaving not even a mark you know, because they don't do what they're supposed to do that. Like, that's a that's a lot for me. They're really grim. And I think even I found it interesting when, you know, Krupp was on the phone and he's like, look, I'm struggling to see how my associate and I fit into this because, you know, we're killers and we kill and we can't do that under your instructions. And I, you know, there's something about them being so in tune to their own nature and being like, this mm. is what we do. But they are ruthless and it is quite hard to see them interact because they're just so horrible nightmares right they're nightmares made flesh yeah. like there's nothing about them that suggests you could forge a connection or barter your way out yeah they're monstrous in the way that we would like to imagine bad guys are monstrous there's none of that nuance that you get with actual villains who are people who've made mistakes or made choices or adopted worldviews or whatever did you have any other marginalia or tangential things you wanted to point out yeah so there are a couple of things like when Richard is first going to the market, he never asks Hunter her name. And I don't understand why he doesn't. He's just like, the reference is just, he tells her, he just calls her the leather-clad woman initially. Like, you know, mm. the leather-clad woman said. Or, and I'm just like, why aren't you asking her what her name is? And yet you are so quick to assume that she's like a hooker. <laughs> like, Well, she did kind of lead him I into know, that, but, but that funny. really bothered me. 
because I thought it was like she 100% was doing that just to get the reaction that he gave mm-hmm. her, which was like, oh, you're this. Like, but he was very tired and polite about it anyway. Like, he just went, okay, and moved on. And I think that that kind of helped her to like him a bit better. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But also, like, the ambiguity of it is a bit, like, I am really, I have to say I'm really tired of this as, like, a thing, a trope. Like, don't put an attractive woman out there who's a fighter and a bodyguard and then be like, oh, I rent my body. Like, we all know what we're going to think about that. Mm. It feels really super lazy to me. Yeah, yeah. As a bait and switch. Like, like I just, it's not funny anymore. But I mean, I know that this book was written a long time ago. But it's also not, it's not a necessary thing at all. Like, would it change anything in the book if that bit wasn't there? Not really. But now we're getting into editing. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. Like, because we are treating the text as sacred, it is in it, and we do have to deal with it. But it's not my favorite thing to see in fiction, and it definitely bothers me whenever I come across it. And this time I just was, like, rolling my eyes, like, okay, okay. I guess it does fit Hunter's character that she doesn't elaborate because she is very matter of fact and she just says things, right? She's like, mind the gap because there are things that live in the gap. She doesn't elaborate. And that way it fits her personality that she's just like, I read my body. And she doesn't really care if he jumps to the wrong conclusion. It's kind of like, that's not my problem, what you think. Yeah. And there's, I think the intent is not to bait and switch us into being like, oh, she's like sexy, but to show us that Richard assumes that. Um, But again, I think, you know, like the society she exists in and the society Richard did exist in, they're very different. And that doesn't really actually show us that difference. It just kind of relies on a Mm. something that we've seen. That's something that feels to me very tired. So yeah. In a similar vein, on page 111, Mm. he makes the observation that, you know, something he was almost certain was a small slave market. And then he kept well clear of this. And that jumped out to me because I I wrote in the margin being like, you know, just because you pretend it doesn't exist doesn't absolve you. You can't just turn a blind eye and go, well, I, I steered well clear of it. So therefore, it's not my problem. Like, that's not how life works. Yeah, I, I saw that too. And I wondered if that's a bit like the, there's definitely this concept of like, you see something so awful, it's incomprehensible. Like, I think that was actually a moment of literal impossibility. Mm, you couldn't, yeah. And to investigate it would cost him way more. And I, like, I don't want to excuse it because it is terrible. And I think you're right. Like, he's not absolved from knowing that it exists. But then I don't want him to go all house, house elf rights either. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, you need to understand the situation you're getting into before you start speaking over everyone and that. Yeah, like, you can't over advocate if you don't actually know the lay of the land. I want to know more about it and I want it to be fixed. But like, also, I think that's there as an indication that like, we're dealing with a world that is less refined and less civilized in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, like we said before, kind of, you know, old-fashioned and fiefdoms and things. Yeah. Um, and also the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was kind of this description of the sumo wrestler. Ruslip, yeah. yeah. I was just like, I don't know why, but I really struggled with the, the sumo wrestling comparison. And like, there seemed to be a lot of fat shaming going on as well. And I'm like, must we? <laughs> yeah, it seems very common in a lot of things that I've read that come out of Do you remember watching Love Actually for the first time and everybody was talking about that super gorgeous actress who's like so tiny? They kept bringing it up like she was fat and that fat was bad. This is what I feel like with a sumo wrestler. Like if all of their mental stuff is meant to be what they're demonstrating, then what does it matter if Varney has terrible teeth and the sumo Mm. wrestler guy is enormous? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of like physical markers and it doesn't add anything to 
that doesn't impact on their ability to do their job. So why do we have to comment on it? Yeah, this this really comes down to choices I make as a writer myself, right? Like mm. when the other character is noticing it, like when Dora turns her odd colored eyes to Richard and he notices again, like that's that seemed more in keeping with the way that you would actually notice someone's eyes. If you're getting to know them, you're looking in their eyes more often, that sort of thing. But like just casual observers, the third person narration constantly commenting. It didn't, yeah. And the same with um, Hunter's skin. Her caramel, this and that. And I'm like, oh my god. (laughs) Writers everywhere. Brown is an acceptable word for skin tones. Just say brown. Coffee (laughs) coloured. When you compare people's skin to food, like that's not, yeah, no. And there are some amazing resources about how not to write this, but I mean, we do have to like, what, I mean, he wrote the series for the, for TV in what, 96 or 97 or something? yeah. So like, this is like an older text now. And this was definitely common in the 90s. Like, Mm. this is not, this is not even that bad for that era. Like, this is probably very, it's like Buffy. In context, Buffy was like a really strong feminist thing. And now when we look back, we're kind of like, oh my gosh. Yeah, and I guess even if, like, 96, this is quite progressive because you've got, like, some diversity in there, which you wouldn't normally have had, right? So, um, was there anything that you wanted to talk about? Tangential thing? Yes. Great. I really wanted to talk about the fact that there is a hand of glory Uh, for sale because I was like, I recognize this from Harry Potter. So it has to be more than just a Harry Potter thing. But like, I do find that a lot of the things that I'm hearing about, I've since heard in other places. So I know that like, I know that JK Rowling has definitely pulled from like a lot of folklore and European tales. And there's like actually a lot of really interesting stuff that is just baked into Harry Potter. But the hand of glory itself is really cool. Um, It's super gross though. Um, so the way you make a hand of glory is you have to cut the hand off a criminal, preserve it, and then you use the fat of the criminal rendered into candle wax and like maybe the hair as the wick to make a candle. You make a candle, you put it into the preserved hand and it will do like various stories say that it will do various things. So you can have the candle going and it will like stop everyone else, like freeze them in time. Mm, okay. Yeah. If they're not you, you're the holder. Um, or it can give light to only its holder, which is what it does in Harry Potter for Draco in book six. Um, and then, like, sometimes it's, like, it can open doors that are locked. Mm, interesting. Which is really yeah. cool. Yeah. So I thought that that was a direct link. Um, and also, there's one legend or there's one theory that you can only put the flame out with milk, which seems weird, but okay. But I love that one of the things that the Hand of Glory does is that it can be used to open doors that are not normally doors you can open. Because that's what door is, like, Yeah, that's what she does. I just, like, I went on a Wikipedia rabbit hole and it was really fun. Oh. oh. (laughs) I love researching this stuff. Super gross. Please don't go get a hand of glory. (laughs) Um, It's been bothering me that he was described as only crying for the last time when his father died when he was a small boy. Yeah. His mum just died not too long ago. Mm. Yeah. I think he's just so repressed. Like, he's just really walled himself off from emotions and I think it's really telling that he is so vulnerable and he's like admitting to Dora and the Marquis that you know I'm living in this nightmare and everything is fine and now it's not and then they leave him and it's just like he's been vulnerable and he's been rejected and he just breaks down because I think he's just not allowed himself to be vulnerable maybe since his dad died he's just put up this weird wall around himself 
Yeah, it's not healthy not to cry. No, definitely not. I definitely think you're onto something that he just hasn't invested that much. Because even the loss of Jessica felt like it was more like a work problem than it was a personal yeah. problem. It's like he's not fully present in his life. Which is maybe another reason why he London Below had such a hold over him so quickly. Because he's just like mm. not emotionally engaged and therefore he was quite easy to wipe from the world. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. It is sad, though, like, his mom made him this sandwiches. It, Don't be like this. Yeah, and look, I think, you know, when you have one parent for six years and then the other parent for 25 or 30 years, there's definitely this temptation to romanticize the parent who died when you were little. Like, oh, and I'm sure he had moments as a teen where he was like, oh, dad wouldn't have done that or been so hard on me. Like, that's just a thing that happens with kids who have only one parent. Like, they, they tend to think the other one would do what the unjust present <laughs> one is forbidding them from mm-hmm. doing you know like that's just how it is but i yeah i do think that there's something to be said about letting yourself feel the emotions you have and also like that's his mom yeah Come on. she was so good to him yeah and maybe she was a faded person but that doesn't mean she's any less deserving of the full grief makes me wonder how much richard really knew about his mom like how engaged was he in her life because he's just like oh well i left and then she just faded away it's like she probably had a full life that you just know nothing about because you're too selfish to even think about it yeah but her knitting club or gardening club or rotary or whoever like because you know like women women in their 40s and 50s if they're not working they're busy they're doing stuff i don't know a single person who's my age or even like 10 20 30 years older who isn't involved in stuff people by nature are not solitary and there's community everywhere so like yeah it just it feels like a fairy tale yeah, it is. Yeah, I agree. Like, those, those aren't real parents. That's Hansel and Gretel's parents, you know? Cinderella's stepmother. Yeah. Mrs. Mayhew, I think you deserved better. Yeah. Well, do you have anyone you want to spotlight? Is there a character who stood out to you? Yeah, I, I was going to spotlight Richard this week because I think, you know, he's he's been through a lot. He's kind of, like, just kept going because he's had to. He's like, okay, I have to find Dora, mm. and that is the next logical step. And then when that doesn't pan out for him, he just kind of has a little breakdown. And I think that's totally fair, you know? Like, he's really held on to this yeah. thing, and then your mind can only take so much, and then it can't take any more. And I feel like that's kind of where he is. And I think... I just wanted to give a little shout out to everyone who's been in that situation where you've pushed yourself as far as you can and now suddenly you can't cope anymore. And, you know, like big hugs. That's what he needs. He just needs a big hug and a big cup of tea and no one trying to kill him for like 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. How about you? This week for me, it's Dor. I'm having really complicated feelings about Dor. We know she's a kid right? She's 15 or 16. I mean, she might be 18 or 19, but she's described as very young and very Mm -hmm. small. And, you know, she like burrows into her clothes to hide herself and she chews her fingernails and she runs her hands through her hair. Like she's obviously very distressed, but she also can't leave Richard behind, which I think is really lovely. Like she was willing to suspend disbelief and say, oh, he'll probably be fine once she left his apartment. But once he was there in London below, having found her again, she couldn't let go of him, which is really like that's a significant danger to herself. Mm-hmm. But she still does the right thing. Yeah. And I think I'm really proud of her for that. That's really hard to do. It's really hard when you're in a desperate situation, stop and still help someone else. So I just, yeah, for all the people out there who are scared and hurting, but still trying to do the right thing by others, I see you. Yeah, that's so nice. And it's such a hard thing to do. Really is. And it would be nice if the Marquis could be nicer to Dawes so she didn't have to do everything on her own. (laughs) 
Oh, my goodness. I Yeah, I want to know why she needs him. Yeah. Because she does say she needs him. Maybe we'll find out next week. We're going to read chapters 7 through 8 through the theme of chance and still compassion. Yep. Exciting. I'm hoping it's lots more like fun action and a lot less scary Vandemar and Kroot, but I think I'm just stuck with these guys for yeah, a while. Yeah, unfortunately. They're not, they're, they're not much fun. <laughs> no. They're just, I don't know. Maybe it's I'm just a big weenie, but yeah. Just really struggling through the like horribleness of their actions it's really hard for me it's because it's not just senseless violence but they're kind of cruel about it as well like they could just kill varney but they don't it's this horrible kind of torture situation and there's the yeah it's like the extreme of it that's hard to stomach yeah they're getting their enrichment from the tormenting yeah (laughs) they need better enclosures they need more wholesome hobbies Oh, well, thank you so much for potting today. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Oh, of course. I love reading these books with you. Yeah. I can't wait to read our next chapter. I know. It's going to be so good. But you have to get to work. Oh, never ends. <laughs> and I'm going to take my very sore self and lay on a heating pad for the next 27 and a half I hours. Love it. Self-care. <laughs> Yeah, don't move and let the kids have their Nintendo. I am not able to chase them around today. (laughs) Yeah, I'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Gen D and Gen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. Your support means the world to us. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. Many of the things we've mentioned are in the show notes, or you can find out more about us and the podcast at www.marginaliapod.com.